Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Aspirin has been a cornerstone agent for the treatment of cardiovascular disease for some time, but despite this history, there's a paucity of literature on long-term antiplatelet use for secondary prevention in patients with coronary artery disease, who are also on anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation. Various guidelines make recommendations for antiplatelet discontinuation, but today's podcast speaker, Dr. Laurel Lake, will identify gaps in evidence and why clinical practice often varies in this patient population. Aspirin has long been used for cardiac prevention for the last three to four decades and beyond. Lately, we've learned a lot more about aspirin in primary prevention through the publication of several um, current studies. However, the use for secondary prevention remains a bit more outdated, to say the least, especially when we look at the specific population of coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation. This might seem like a little bit of a niche topic, um, a very specific population. However, when we consider that according to the American Heart Association, among patients with coronary artery disease, 10 to 20% of them have atrial fibrillation. So this topic is catching a very large amount of patients. First, today we will outline the guideline recommendations for the duration of antiplatelet therapy in acute coronary syndrome in patients who are also anticoagulated. Secondly, we will review recent literature examining antiplatelet therapy in these patients. And finally, we'll discuss the risk and balance of these various therapies. Before we get started, I'd like you to meet our patient, BW. She'll be joining us today. She is an 84-year-old female with a past medical history of AFib, atherosclerotic heart disease, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. She has type 2 diabetes and a history of stroke in 2009. Her current medications are included here, several antihypertensive medications. You'll note she's both on apixaban and clopidogrel, as well as pantoprazole, and she uses insulin to treat her diabetes. She presents to the clinic today for follow-up of diabetes and hypertension. Upon review of her medications, you notice she's taking both apixaban and clopidogrel. Excuse me, aspirin. Apixaban and clopidogrel, that is correct. Um, given her current history, what do you decide to do? A, continue both apixaban and clopidogrel. B, stop apixaban and continue clopidogrel. C, continue apixaban and stop clopidogrel. Or D, continue apixaban and change clopidogrel to aspirin. I'll give a moment for our listeners online to send their response as well. For the sake of time, hopefully some uh, results will trickle in, but we will go with what we have here. And the results are what I was hoping for. Nobody selected B, which I think is a good thing. Um, we do not want to stop the apixaban given her atrial fibrillation. We know she's high risk in that department. However, as you can see from our results, the rest of the responses are varied. Some thoughts to stop the clopidogrel, some to change it. There really are um, a very gray area, and I wanted to include this question just to highlight how gray it really is. So jumping into our first objective, we'll outline the guideline recommendations for the duration of antiplatelet therapy in acute coronary syndrome in patients using anticoagulation 
or atrial fibrillation. Before we delve too much into this topic, I just want to clarify that the population we'll really be focusing on is not the discussion of dual therapy versus triple antiplatelet therapy. That's a discussion that has been well discussed elsewhere. There is a previous grand rounds on that topic that outlines it well, and there's lots of great recommendations for that topic. So our focus will be on that long-term, one year after a coronary event, what should we do with these patients? To get started, let's look at the American College of Cardiology as well as American Heart Association guidance. In 2016, they published an update including the use of dual antiplatelet therapy in patients with coronary artery disease. And just to highlight the disparities in our data, we see that there were no specific recommendations regarding patients with atrial fibrillation, but they do give some general guidance for the approach of these patients. And in 2019, we don't get a lot better. We have some guidelines for the management of patients with atrial fibrillation, However, that guidance does not extend beyond one year of therapy, hence why I'm talking about this today. Next, looking at the European Society of Cardiology, we see some various guidelines from them. They recommend that after the initial treatment phase with both um, an oral anticoagulant as well as an antiplatelet, we can continue that for 12 months. And part of the reason for this is that first six months of therapy is our highest risk as far as stent thrombosis goes, some of those more complications from that acute event. So we want to ensure that patients are covered for that time point. However, they recommend that after one year of combined oral anticoagulant and antiplatelet therapy, that OAC monotherapy should be continued long-term. However, they do make the caveat that in patients with increased risk of stent thrombosis or recurrent cardiac events, it may be reasonable to continue both an oral anticoagulant and an antiplatelet, depending on the risk of bleeding, of course. Throughout this um, guidance, they continue to highlight the lack of data in the specific patient population. So given that, um, just to highlight their bottom line, we may consider that dual use only in the selected patients, so certainly not a strong recommendation. To highlight further, we can see across the board in various different settings that they, first of all, recommend continuing our OAC. We know that is a good recommendation, so that will not be discussed. Um, but you can see across here in their various state statements that they recommend to continue the OAC and the antiplatelet therapy only in these select cases where they are determined to be higher risk. And throughout this first part of the presentation, I'll be discussing higher risk a bit as an ambiguous term. And at the end, we'll delve into what those risks might be and when we would consider these situations. To put a visual to their recommendations, we have here a nice little graph. Again, this is a bit older, and I don't want to focus on the duration of triple therapy versus dual antitherapy. We do have more data in this arena now. What I really want to highlight is what happens after 12 months. We see regardless of their thromboembolic risk and bleeding risk, overall, they recommend continuing oral anticoagulation therapy alone at that 12-month time point. Then, further, in 2019, the European Society of Cardiology published some additional guidelines on chronic coronary syndrome. And they recommend, again, that OAC monotherapy be considered after that 12-month time period, even potentially as soon as that six-month time period in those who are less high risk for thromboembolic events. Again, they note that there is a lack of specific data supporting this long-term treatment. And then finally, we'll look at a 2018, so a little bit older, North American consensus statement 
regarding patients with atrial fibrillation with oral anticoagulation undergoing a PCI. Regarding the duration of antiplatelet use, they recommend to discontinue antiplatelet therapy at one year in most patients, and again, highlighting the consideration of potentially at six months for those who are lower ischemic risk. And likewise, we see here a very similar set of recommendations. Um, some of the nuances between triple therapy and dual therapy are a bit um, separate here, depending on their bleed and their clotting risk. But then we see in those on the bottom who are lower ischemic risk and higher bleed risk, reasonable to switch to OAC alone at that six-month mark. And again, highlighting at 12 months, we see our big blue arrow in favor of oral anticoagulant alone. So you might be thinking, based on these uh, consensus statements and guidelines, it seems pretty clear that in most cases, we should stop an antiplatelet agent after one year, except for those patients who are deemed particularly high risk. And you may be wondering, well, if it's so clearly outlined, why do I see such disparity in my practice? Why am I maybe not sure what to do when I am asked this question? And you may be asking, where does this supporting evidence come from? And that's a big question that I had as well. In reviewing a lot of these different recommendations, what we see is a lot of their evidence is extrapolated from older studies and studies that maybe don't fit the clinical question at hand quite perfectly. So we'll review a couple of those studies that I kept coming across throughout these recommendations. The first of those is a 2002 randomized trial titled Warfarin, Aspirin, or Both After MI. And this included over 3,600 patients who are 75 years or older, excuse me, or younger with an MI. Participants were randomized to one of three groups. The groups are rather interesting. First, we had warfarin monotherapy with quite a high INR goal, you can note. Then participants could be randomized to aspirin monotherapy at 160 milligrams. And thirdly, there was a combination group of aspirin plus warfarin, and you'll notice the INR goal was quite a bit lower here. Throughout this course of the study, their primary outcome was a composite of death, non-fatal reinfarction, or thromboembolic stroke. And participants were followed up for four years. What we can see here on this first graph on the left side is the primary outcome. So to refresh, that's death, non-fatal reinfarction, or thromboembolic stroke. And we see that in the aspirin monotherapy group, the rate of the primary event was significantly higher compared to the warfarin and the aspirin and warfarin group. And that was statistically significantly different. <laughs> in the warfarin and the aspirin and warfarin group, there was no statistical difference between the two. So as far as prevention, the warfarin and the combination group performed better. But when we look at rate of bleeding outcomes, as you might imagine, we see a little bit of a different picture. So moving your attention to the right-hand side here, you'll see that among major bleeds, there were more major bleeds numerically in the warfarin monotherapy group, which seems a little odd that there was higher bleed risk compared to the combination group. However, if you recall, the INR goal was 2.8 to 4.2 for those patients, so much higher risk um, alone in that. But then looking, interestingly, at minor bleeds and withdrawal of therapy due to bleeding, we see the highest rate of that happening in that combination of aspirin plus warfarin group. So what we can glean from this is that there was no difference in the primary outcomes between the warfarin monotherapy group compared to that combination group. Major bleeding was higher in the warfarin monotherapy group, although, as I discussed, that's likely skewed due to that INR goal. And minor bleeds or withdrawal of therapy due to bleeding was highest in the aspirin plus warfarin combination group. 
However, you may be asking, how can we use this data in our current population? There was no information about who or how many patients had atrial fibrillation, so it's not exactly relevant perfectly to our population at hand. A lot of this data was just extrapolated from this study to the current guidelines, but we do have good data regarding bleed risk among um, or from this study. And then secondly, I'll review another article that I commonly came across throughout those recommendations titled Incidence, Source, Determinants, and Prognostic Impact of Major Bleeding in Outpatients with Stable Coronary Artery Disease. Bit of a mouthful. This was a 2014 prospective trial that included over 4,000 patients. They were included if they had stable coronary artery disease, which was defined as being free from MI or revascularization for at least one year, and there were no exclusion criteria. So they had a very broad, pragmatic approach to this, and participants were followed up for two years. The objective, as the name implies, was to assess why the bleedings occurred and what the impacts were, and data was collected on death, MI, stroke, and major bleeding. So among this study, only 11% of participants were on warfarin. But we, when we consider that over 4,000 participants were included, that gives us 461 patients on warfarin. And when we further break down what was happening in that warfarin group, we see that about three quarters were on combination with an antiplatelet agent and about one quarter on warfarin monotherapy. So that gives us about 340 in that combo group and about 120 in that warfarin monotherapy group. From there, what I'd like to highlight is the results as far as efficacy. There was no significant difference compared to the, in the warfarin compared to the warfarin plus antiplatelet group. But as far as bleeding goes, we saw some interesting results here. So long-term anticoagulation was the strongest risk factor for bleeding especially in those on an antiplatelet agent. So looking at our risk ratios compared to antiplatelet monotherapy, we'll see on that bottom line that warfarin did have a bit of a higher risk as far as bleeding goes. But when you look at the warfarin combined with the antiplatelet therapy, there's a risk ratio of 7.3, so a very significant worse bleeding rate with that combination therapy group. That sums up um, that 2014 trial. And so we can see again, not a perfect fit to the data. We know the bleed risk is higher with the combination therapy. And then finally, I just want to tie in some of our more recent literature. You've likely seen a lot of these studies published in the last seven or so years, I suppose, by now. And these studies primarily looked at antiplatelet therapies regarding dual antiplatelet therapy versus triple therapy. And so a lot of times when we think about the aspirin dilemma and when to continue it, maybe some of these studies pop into our mind being some of the more landmark trials. However, I would like to highlight the shortcomings when applying these results to our patient population. Primarily, as mentioned, their purpose was to assess dual versus triple therapy. And as you'll see, their follow-up period was essentially limited to one year or 14 months. So we don't get a lot of that long-term data of what to do past that one year mark. So all this to say, there's not a lot of great data supporting the recommendations in these guidelines and consensus statements. Until recently, there's no studies reporting exclusively on AFib patients undergoing PCI in the context of stable coronary artery disease. And the best we can do is extrapolate some of this older data or maybe not uh, perfect fit <laughs> and looking at um, the combination therapy of medium to long-term after the procedure. 
And just to highlight some of our issues here, our extrapolated data includes older studies, which in and of itself is not a problem. However, they are not specific to atrial fibrillation, and by nature of being older, we're lacking data on DOAX. And that's not to say that we can't extrapolate some of that. However, since much of our therapy is now driven by DOAX, it remains um, as a bit of a question uh, what to do. And then finally, little data assessing anticoagulation alone. So after we drop that antiplatelet therapy, there seems to be a big question mark. Again, highlighting our clinical practice and the disparity between the guidelines, there is certainly a difference. And I think it's easy to see, given the lack of really specific evidence, why this discrepancy exists. So to summarize, I would like to check our knowledge based on what we discussed. So based on the literature discussed, a limitation to the current evidence regarding the long-term use of antiplatelet therapy with concurrent anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation is, A, there are few trials that assess the use of DOAX in this population, B, much of the literature has focused on answering the important question of dual therapy versus triple therapy. C, many studies only focus on long-term data, greater than 12 months. Or D, both A and B, and E, all of the above. Okay, excellent. So the majority here answering both A and B, I would say are correct. Looking at our answers here, option A, there are few trials that assess the use of DOAX in this population. That is indeed true. Option B reads, much of the literature focusing on that dual versus triple therapy. We also know that is true. That's been a priority in research. And then finally, many of the studies focused on long-term data, I would say is not the correct answer. Much of our uh, results or research in this area are focusing more on that short-term immediate event um, information. So I agree that D is indeed the best answer. Moving on to objective two, we're going to step away from the past and move into some of the more current guidelines, reviewing recent literature examining antiplatelet therapy in this population. First, we'll be discussing a fire or antithrombotic therapy for atrial fibrillation with stable coronary artery disease. This was a trial published in 2019 that was designed as a non-inferiority randomized controlled trial. The goal of this study was unique. It was the first of its kind and it aimed to assess whether monotherapy with rivaroxaban was non-inferior to rivaroxaban plus an antiplatelet agent in patients exclusively with atrial fibrillation and coronary artery disease. So we see that over 2,000 participants are included. As discussed, they had to have AFib plus stable coronary artery disease with a CHADS VASC of at least one, and they had to meet one of the following additional criteria. A PCI at least one year prior to enrollment, angiographically confirmed coronary artery disease, and this was confirmed if they had greater than or equal to 50% stenosis, and then finally, a cabbage at least one year prior. Participants were excluded if they had a history of stent thrombosis, active tumor, or poorly controlled hypertension. From there, they were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio, either to rivaroxaban monotherapy or rivaroxaban plus an antiplatelet agent. And I would like to highlight the dosing they used. So we see here that in um, adequate renal function, they use 15 milligrams daily. And for those with reduced renal function, 10 milligrams daily. And this study was conducted in Japan, where the guideline recommendations for atrial fibrillation differ a bit from what we would typically see in clinical practice here. So that is a caveat to point out. 
Then participants were followed up at six months and at the end of trial, which was planned for about two years. The primary outcome was a composite of stroke, systemic embolism, MI, unstable angina requiring revascularization or death from any cause, and the primary safety outcome, as you may have guessed, is major bleeding. So looking at our results, who were included here, we see that the average age was 74, the vast majority were men, about 70% had previous PCI and 11% previous cabbage. Then looking at the antiplatelet therapies received, that was up to providers' discretion, and we'll see that the majority, about 70%, received aspirin, and about 26% were on clopidogrel. Important to note that this trial ended two months earlier than planned because some of their initial data showed that there was a higher risk of all-cause death in the combination therapy group. And you might be raising your eyebrows wondering why that is, and we will discuss that. Um, so stay tuned. And the average treatment duration was 23 months. So looking specifically at the results, we see across the top the primary efficacy endpoint. So comparing rivaroxaban therapy to combination therapy, you can see that the overall incidence of the primary composite event was lower in that monotherapy group, very much so. It met significance for non-inferiority, and upon further analysis, they even deemed it to be superior to the combination therapy. And looking through some of our secondary endpoints here as well, we see that among hemorrhagic stroke, which makes sense, um, as well as CV death and non-CV death, that it favored the rivaroxaban monotherapy group. So some very interesting findings here. And looking at our safety side of things, again, as you would suspect, there was a lower risk, statistically significant, of major bleeding in that rivaroxaban monotherapy group, as well as in non-major bleeding and net adverse events. And for most cases in this study, unless I otherwise um, denote when I speak about major bleeding, it's our ISTH definition of major bleeding, so what you would typically see um, as a definition in clinical practice. So some limitations here to a fire. There's a few to touch on, some to dig a little deeper into. It was open label. There was a fairly high rate of withdrawal and loss of patients. And as I discussed, the river rock span reduced dose that is approved in Japan. However, when there are blood studies of um, in the Japanese population versus our population, we do see similar drug levels. So the significance of this is a little unclear. As I mentioned, the antiplatelet choice was at the provider's discretion, and we don't have data um, on the differences between the group. So it's unclear whether the monotherapy impact would apply equally to both of those groups. As discussed, there was early termination of the trial due to the difference in the endpoint, and this leads to possibly an overestimation of effect and then finally, the lower rates of ischemic event and death from any cause in the monotherapy group is a bit of a conundrum. And I think the authors of this study summed it up very well when they stated it was unanticipated and difficult to explain, and that the findings simply may be due to a play of chance, which is certainly not the kind of result we want to hear. And I, I don't think our conclusion from this should be that our monotherapy group was superior. It's an interesting finding, certainly. And so what we can conclude from this is that in these patients with atrial fibrillation and stable coronary artery disease, rivaroxaban monotherapy was non-inferior to rivaroxaban plus antiplatelet in terms of cardiovascular events and death from any cause. And secondly, as we would suspect, 
rivaroxaban monotherapy was superior with respect to major bleeding. Next, we'll discuss another trial that was published in 2019. This was another non-inferiority trial, and the title is really a mouthful. We have the open-label randomized trial comparing oral anticoagulation with and without single antiplatelet therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation and stable coronary artery disease beyond one year after coronary stent implantation, or OAC alone. And I feel like after reading that title, there's no need to discuss further what the design was of the study because all of the information is right there. But just to be thorough, we will. As I discussed, it was non-inferiority randomized control trial. And you can see that something that sets it apart from the AFIRE trial is that it specifically looked at those with stable coronary artery disease who had received a stent. Again, you had to have atrial fibrillation to be included in this trial. And prior to randomization, participants had to be treated with a combination of oral anticoagulant and a single antiplatelet agent. From there, once they were on their dual therapy, at the point of randomization, they were either determined to continue that combination or they had to drop the antiplatelet therapy and continue OAC alone. Follow-up was conducted at one year and at the end of this trial. Primary outcome was very similar to what we saw with a fire, looking at all-cause death, MI, stroke, or systemic embolism. Our results here, similar age to last time, um, 75 was the average age. The average time of the last PCI to enrollment was four and a half years. So this was a nice setup to give us some of that long-term data, what we should do after that 12-month point. You'll see that about three quarters received warfarin and about one quarter DOAC and a vast majority, about 85%, received aspirin as their antiplatelet therapy. Participants were followed up for about two years, and something important to note was that crossover was allowed in the study, and there was quite significant crossover between groups. We'll see in those who were initially on the OAC alone group, from those, about 12% switched to the combination therapy group, primarily due to the progression of their coronary artery disease. On the other hand, about 9% of those who were initially in the combination therapy group were switched to OAC alone, mainly, shockingly, due to bleeding events. So what we can glean from this study is, um, <laughs> is kind of challenging. This study actually ended up having to revamp their protocol about partway through because their enrollment of participants was so very slow. And actually, it had to be early terminated um, because it had such slow enrollment. So that really skews the results that we have. So from those 600 or so patients, this is the information we have available. Looking at the primary endpoint, we see of any cause death, MI, stroke, and systemic embolism, that numerically there was a bit higher rate in that OAC alone group compared to the combination therapy group, and it did not meet non-inferiority. Looking at the secondary endpoints, kind of an interesting one here. Our first secondary um, endpoint is essentially our ischemic primary endpoint combined with major bleeding. So for this, there was a similar rate between both groups, and they deemed that it was indeed non-inferior. But it makes sense if we can consider that we could take kind of the good and bad of each therapy and put them together. So the ischemic risk, the bleeding risk, and when you pull it all together, there was no difference in the outcome. Not a lot of um, great recommendations to take from that. And then finally, we see with major bleed, again, a higher risk in the combination therapy group. So some takeaways from this is that 
non-inferiority of OAC alone was not met compared to an oral anticoagulant plus antiplatelet. The stent thrombosis was acceptably low in the OAC alone group, so that was a positive takeaway, and there were numerically fewer MIs and stent thrombosis in that combination therapy group. However, when I say numerically fewer, we're comparing like zero to two or four to eight, just because the overall numbers were so low, it's hard to really glean much from that. And then as discussed a bit, the ischemic endpoint did not show non-inferiority. However, when we combine that with a bleeding endpoint, we could say that the OAC alone was non-inferior considering the risks and benefits of each therapy. Limitations are vast for this study. Some key ones are the very slow enrollment and their early termination that led them to be quite underpowered. There was large crossover, open label design, and when the participants were on warfarin, in Japan it's um, a typical reduced dose of warfarin for those who are 75 years of age or older. So their INR goal was 1.6 to 2.6. So again, some difficulties in extrapolating that data to fit um, our population here. What we can conclude is pretty inconclusive, unfortunately. Perhaps the most important highlight and why I included this study is that it highlights some of the difficulties in this population. Namely, with that slow enrollment, it was noted that the reason for this was largely because there was such a hesitancy by providers to discontinue the antiplatelet therapy. To wrap up objective number two, let's jump back to a fire trial. So the first one I discussed and from that trial, we may conclude that A, monotherapy with rivaroxaban may be as effective as combination therapy for stable coronary artery disease. B, there is no difference in bleed risk between rivaroxaban monotherapy and combination therapy. C, the risk of cardiovascular death will be lower in patients treated with rivaroxaban monotherapy. And D, rivaroxaban should be used at lower doses to prevent bleed risk. All right, as we get some results coming in here, it looks like the majority selected what I would agree is indeed the correct answer. Let's start at the bottom and work our way up. So option D, I'm glad no one selected that. So there was a lower dose used in the AFIRE trial based on the Japanese guidelines. However, I would not endorse that. C, the risk of cardiovascular death was indeed a little bit lower in this study, but we don't know why. And so we cannot say that the risk of cardiovascular death will be lower in that monotherapy group. It may have been a play of chance. And then B is not the correct answer because there was less bleed risk in the rivaroxaban monotherapy group. So finally, as promised, we will finally get to discussing some of those risk balance, risk benefit balance. So looking first at our stroke risk score. So there's a lot of different factors to consider in our overall risk of these patients. They have their stroke risk from their AFib, they have ischemic risk from their coronary artery disease, and they have bleed risk from however many anticoagulant or antiplatelet agents they're on. So just to highlight our stroke risk here, this will not be a big emphasis. Of course we know CHADS2 and CHADS2-VASC are very useful in determining the appropriateness of anticoagulant therapy in those with atrial fibrillation. That's not the question here. We're not discussing whether we should drop anticoagulant therapy. So this is just important to keep in mind, and there's you know, good factors to have in the back of your head as far as bleed risks go, but we cannot perfectly extrapolate them to that coronary artery disease population by any means. 
So moving away from the AFib world and into more of that coronary artery disease ischemic risk world, there's a few different risk scores here to highlight. First, we have the syntax, then the grace, and the reach score. I won't be discussing the reach score today as it's not been a very useful validated tool. However, syntax and grace are certainly worth mentioning as they relate to PCI and ACS respectively. And we'll discuss both of those. And I also wanted to make note of the DAPT score or the dual antiplatelet therapy score. This was designed to determine who should be continued on dual antiplatelet therapy and who maybe does not need it. And it was not developed to look at chronic oral anticoagulation combinations. So again, it does not perfectly fit our population here, but we can at least again consider some of those risks that are included in the dual antiplatelet score when considering ischemic risk. So looking first at the syntax, recall back to the beginning we discussed the European Cardiology Society and some of their recommendations. They recommend using the syntax to guide decisions of intervention regarding coronary artery disease. And this is based upon the anatomical extent of the coronary artery disease. So this is a tool that's used inpatient immediately um, around a cardiovascular event and is not going to answer the question of to continue antiplatelet therapy or not. However, I think it could be a useful tool to refer back to down the road, looking at the actual impact of what was happening cardiovascularly. I think often subjectively we hear from providers oh, their blockage is great, or they have um, this much blockage, whatever it may be, it's often very hard to put an objective value on that. And syntax is a tool that allows us to do that. A meta-analysis has recently confirmed the value um, of using syntax to identify these higher risk of coronary events. So we know it's well validated and it really helps to guide these decisions. Looking at some of the criteria included, it's a quite useful tool if you ever want to go online and play around with it. You walk through the different anatomical factors, uh, choosing whether it's right or left dominance, what specific arteries are involved, how much occlusion, how much calcification. So it's quite neat. And again, this is going to be largely provider driven, but a useful tool for us to refer back on. And then once you enter these criteria, it gives you different results that are risk stratified into different groups outlining a four-year MACE rate. So looking at all-cause death, CVA or stroke, MI, or repeat PCI and cabbage. Then, moving on to the GRACE, store, grace score, this is a helpful estimate to help us determine the risk of death or MI in patients following an acute coronary syndrome. Again, this is another validated tool that has been shown to um, have a high correlation in its predictive ability. And one thing to note, again, this is more looking at that acute um, risk of event. So it calculates our in-cause mortality and the six-month post-discharge mortality. So when we consider that 12-month and beyond, this is not going to be a perfect tool to use, but again, another tool to have in our tool belt of assessing different ischemic risks. Then finally, going way back to the beginning of our ESC guidelines for classification of risk, if you recall, a lot of their guidance was based on in high-risk situations, we may continue both agents. So looking at what they defined as high-risk events, they would classify if you had diffuse multivessel coronary artery disease with at least one of the following. So diabetes with treatment, recurrent MI, peripheral artery disease or renal impairment, or NSTEMI with the last remaining patent coronary artery disease, or stenting of the left main stem or proximal bifurcation. 
And then conversely, looking at some of those higher bleed risk situations that they defined. They would say you are higher bleed risk and maybe would push more for that antiplatelet therapy discontinuation in those with a prior history of intracerebral hemorrhage or ischemic stroke, those who have had a recent GI bleed. So if we think back to our gal BW uh, with that GI bleed, and then other gastrointestinal pathology, liver failure, coagulopathy. I like this one, extreme old age or frailty, a very vague um, determinant, but certainly something that we should always assess in our older patients. And then finally, renal failure. To wrap things up as we think about that balance of risk and benefit, some helpful recommendations for risk mitigation is of course the use of PPI in those on triple therapy or those on double therapy who are higher bleed risk. And the European Society of Cardiologists recommend that we consider the use of PPIs in all of these patients with OAC plus antiplatelet therapy. So coming back to BW, she's been on quite a ride since we last saw her. A lot has developed. So to refresh yourself about her medical history and her medications, I've included them there, but I wanna draw your attention to this bold text. She has a history of hospitalization five months ago for a GI bleed, and the decision was made to continue both apixaban and clopidogrel given her cardiovascular risk. You see her today, and she tells you about a one-week history of diarrhea and nausea, which you don't think much about, until she starts to tell you that her stools are quite dark and tarry. You suggest she goes to the ED, and she's found to have a recurrent GI bleed. I'll give you a moment just to take that all in again. And that brings us back to poll everywhere. So you see BW in clinic the following week after resolution of her acute symptoms. At this time, do you A, continue both apixaban and clopidogrel, B, stop apixaban, continue clopidogrel, C, stop, excuse me, continue apixaban, stop clopidogrel, D, continue apixaban and change clopidogrel to aspirin, or E, stop both agents. Those are kind of a mouthful to say. I'll give everyone online time to read through them and we will discuss. It looks like those in our room are in agreement. All right, well, I'm a little surprised how overwhelmingly everyone is agreeing. So it sounds like the data presented maybe convinced you that after this time period, we should indeed stop the antiplatelet therapy, especially given her recent GI bleed and those bleeding risks. I would tend to agree with option C of, of course, continuing our apixaban for her atrial fibrillation, but stopping that clopidogrel for that higher bleed risk. However, to muddy the water a little bit more, Let's consider the following. Would your decision change if you found out she had an NSTEMI requiring a drug-eluting stent nine months ago? Same options. All right, hopefully we'll get a few more responses in here shortly. But based on what we have right now, we have a pretty even split between continuing the apixaban and stopping the clopidogrel or changing the clopidogrel to aspirin. So the reason I included this question is, number one, it was a very interesting case that I came across and I wanted to hear people's input on it. Um, but number two, as we can see from the disparity in our responses here, although there's recommendations, although there's newer data, our clinical decisions still remain very gray in this area. I can't say there's one correct answer um, or one best thing to do and ultimately, as, our, um, as I'll summarize, 
um, the balance needs to come down to the patient's you know, goals, what their decisions are, and if they would favor the bleed risk, the ischemic risks, and taking that into account. So the big takeaway points today is that in most cases, our guidelines and consensus statements favor the discontinuation of antiplatelet therapy after that one-year time point. The data supporting this recommendation remains limited, even after our two trials we discussed, but those recent studies may help to reinforce these recommendations in some ways. Our biggest takeaway today is that the picture indeed remains gray, but there are resources and there are tools that we can use to help guide a well-informed decision. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Mm -hmm.